Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at chapter 8 uh, as we continue our study uh, through this book. We'll have celebration uh, weekend next weekend. Then we'll have a break in August to look at the, some minor prophets, the summer series, and then back to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, when we uh, come back in September. So today, Hebrews uh, chapter 8. Now, we don't know the writer of the Hebrews, but he is writing to a Jewish audience. He himself is steeped in the Old Testament. We have over 40 direct quotes from the Old Testament and over 40 allusions to passages in the Old Testament. So this guy knows his Old Testament. And he's telling this Jewish audience who they trusted in Christ, they're believers, but their, their background is with Judaism. <clears throat> they have all these things in the temple and sacrifices and high priests and all these things they've been taught since they were very young. It's not, it's not only in Judaism, it's just not only their, their religion, it is their culture. And so the writer is telling them, in Jesus, you have everything you need and you don't have to hold on to the past. In fact, there are some things in your past you have to drop in order to follow hard after Jesus. Uh, that would include all of us as well, right? We have some things in our past. Some of you may have some traditions that are getting in the way of following Christ into the future. Some of you may have some past stuff in your life that's holding you back from following hard after Christ today. And so as we look at this passage today, let's just see who Jesus is, and let's talk about this covenant that he has brought. We're going to see these things today. We're going to see four things about the person of Jesus. And again, the writer is just over and over telling his readers, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Four things about Jesus, and then four things about this new covenant that Jesus ushers in. So let me read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 8, and then we'll start working our way through those verses. The writer says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Let's stop there in Greek. Uh, the writer is saying, this is my main point. This is what you've got to know. This is what, if you don't know anything else in my letter, the writer is saying, nail this down. I've just told you in chapter 7, we saw last week, that Jesus is after the order of this guy named Melchizedek, this priest who is forever. He is, he is our high priest forever. Now, this is what you need to know about that. This is the point in what we are saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent. He's in heaven. He's in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The first thing that the writer tells us in this passage is that we have this high priest. He's been arguing that throughout his book. In the, in the Old Testament, the Jewish believer, the high priest, was the most important person in their religious system, and he was the most important person because he was the only one who could put them into a relationship with God. When you, when you went to the temple, you prayed through the high priest. When you uh, made a, an offering of thanksgiving, you gave that offering to the high priest. He was the one who presented it to God. When you uh, brought a sacrifice for your sins, you gave it to the high priest. He was the one who offered it to God. And the writer's been telling us in Hebrews, that's the old covenant. That we don't have to do that anymore. Jesus is now our high priest. He's told us that over and over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 17, he is the merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 3, verse 1, 
He is the high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14, he is the great high priest who passed through the heavens. The very next verse, chapter 4, verse 15, he is the high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Chapter 7, verse 24, we saw this last time. He's, he, holds the, he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is our high priest. Now, the writer's going to tell us four things about this high priest that we need to know. These are most important, the writer is saying. Here's what I got to tell you. Here's what you got to nail down about our high priest, Jesus. Number one, he is seated. That's very significant. It's only one word, but it's very significant. The word seated means his work is complete. In the Old Testament, in the temple, there were no seats. There were no benches. You didn't need a bench. You didn't need a seat because there was no need to sit down. You were always moving. The, the priests went in the temple day by day, year after year. They were offering gifts of thanksgiving. They were offering gifts of sacrifices. Those gifts of sacrifices were good, and they were vital, and they were a part of Old Testament worship, but they were a band-aid on a person's sin, just kind of covered over for a while. And then you came back the next day, or you came sometimes every day. For sure, you came back once a year because on the Day of Atonement that took place once a year, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in, and he would give a sacrifice for the sins of all the people in Israel. And he would take some incense, and he would let the incense go in first so that a smoke screen would be between him and the Holy of Holies because that was a fearful place. He would go in. He would do his job quickly. He would get out year after year after year after year. That happened. But what does our high priest do? He sat down because his work is complete. Check this out, Hebrews chapter 10. Go over one, uh, two chapters, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. The writer there says, And every high priest stands daily at his service. Every high priest in the Old Testament stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They can't take away sins. Just a Band-Aid on it. Verse uh, 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down. One time for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. Now, what was that single sacrifice for sins? We'll go back to chapter 7, verse 27. There the writer says, Jesus, he has no need like those high priests of the Old Testament to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up what? Himself. The, the gift of Jesus, the offering of Jesus was himself. He was the perfect sinless sacrifice. And that's why the work is complete. Just think about that. The work of salvation is complete in Jesus. Some of you may be here and you may be saying, you know what, I, um, I want to be a Christian and I'm here at church and, and I, and I want to follow Jesus, but, but I got this stuff in my life. I'm, there's some things I'm not proud of. And once I, once I get them cleaned up, once I stop doing those things or once I get them cleaned up or once I get far enough away from my past, then I think God will accept me. Well, that's a lie from Satan because you can't clean yourself up enough. 
for God to accept you. The work has to be complete in Jesus. So if you've got those things in your past, God can take care of those things. He forgives us, gives us a new life in Christ. The work is complete in Jesus. Some believers say, well, yeah, I know Jesus saved me. I grew up like this. Jesus saved me. I get that. I trusted in him. I'm a Christian. But I still got to do these things for him really to love me. I have to prove myself to him. I, have to, I, didn't, I, I know I don't have to earn my salvation. It's a free gift. I get that. But I got to keep working so that Jesus will, will accept me. Because a lot of us are performance-driven, right? And then that takes place in our, in our relationship with Christ. But, but you can't work anymore for perfect love, right? If, if, if God's love is perfect, we believe God's love is perfect, right? Well, if it's perfect, you can't do anything to make Him love you more because it's perfect. And you can't do anything to make Him love you less because it's perfect. As a believer, the work of Christ is complete. Man, if we can nail that down, that gives us the con- that, that's the basis for eternal security. We don't have to add ever add anything to the work of Christ. It is complete. Number two, not only is it complete, but it is honored by God. How, how, how do we know what Jesus did when he offered himself as a sacrifice? How do we know that God approved that? Well, we see that in the following part of this verse. One, we have such a high priest, Jesus, one who is seated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in, of the majesty in heaven. The, the right hand of the king was the place of honor, and it was a place of power. And here's Jesus sitting at the all-powerful throne of heaven in the all-powerful position at God's right hand. It's as if God said, your work is done, your work is complete, I approve of it, and here you go. Set in the most powerful position at my right hand. Complete and honored. Now, what did Jesus do to earn, to deserve that place by God's right hand? Turn over to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 3. First uh, few verses or chapters of Revelation are these letters to uh, the early churches, seven churches, in fact. And here's a, a letter to the church in Laodicea. If you remember, the church in Laodicea, they're believers. Jesus is speaking to them, and he's saying, you know, uh, I, I see your works, and, and quite honestly, you're kind of lukewarm. You're kind of wishy-washy. I, I, I wish you were hot, or I wish you were cold, but you're just right in the middle. Now, they're believers, and then Jesus tells them in verse 19, those whom I love, why do I say these things to you? Why do I challenge you like this? Because he says, those whom I love, I what? I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Don't stay in your lukewarmness. Then he says in verse 20, we always use this verse as a kind of a a, a verse to share with non-believers, and certainly we can, but in the context, it's written to believers. It's about coming back to fellowship. It's about coming back to the the intimacy we can have with, with Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. And then he says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to set with me on my throne. So I'm going to bring you up as well. The one who conquers, I'm going to invite you to set on my throne. But then here's what I want to get at. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. Jesus said, I conquered. What did Jesus conquer? Only death itself. Only the last enemy. Jesus 
conquered death. What Satan thought was a victory was his defeat. Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus says, because I conquered, I conquered death itself. God the Father has invited me up to sit in this honored position, this all-powerful position. My work is complete in your salvation. And you're going to join me one day as you follow me. I'm going to invite you to sit with me. I'm going to invite you to heaven to be a part of this great kingdom, not built by human hands, but built by God himself. Number three, not only is the work complete, not only is the work honored by God, but third, the work of Jesus is continual. Or you say, that's weird. You just said it's complete and it's done. It is. That's the salvation part. But uh, we're not in heaven yet, are we? And we need some help. We need help along the way. And so we see, the writer says, not only is this Jesus seated, not only is he sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, but he is a what? A minister in the holy places. He is a minister to us, with us from heaven. Just think about this. Here's the picture of Jesus in the heavenly temple, not made by man, but made by God. And he is ministering to us. He is working on our behalf. Not on our salvation. That's done. That's settled. We are a child of God and will forever be if we trusted in Christ. But he's ministering on our behalf. So what's Jesus doing? Well, the Old Testament priest, right, would take the offerings of thanksgiving, would take the offerings of praise, would take the confessions, and he would deliver them to God. Our high priest right now is doing the same thing. When we were singing a little bit ago in all the campuses, Jesus was taking those, those praises and he was offering them as our praise gift to God. Now, it's not just when we're singing, but that's every day of our life when we're praising him. Our gifts of thanksgiving as we thank God for what he's done. We're going to take communion in a little bit and we're going to thank Jesus, for everything he's done for us, Jesus takes those offerings and, and presents them to God. Our confession, when we, when, when we sin as believers, the Holy Spirit's living in us, right? So when we sin, we have conviction. And so we ask God for forgiveness. The Holy, God, Jesus takes that re- repentance and he offers it to God as our, as our sacrifice, as our, as our gift offering. Everything we do comes through, goes through Jesus. Now you say, okay, how do you know that? Well, Paul says in Colossians, this would be one verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, how? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And giving thanks to God the Father, how? Through Jesus. See, regarding our salvation, Jesus sets down. But ministering to us, we can't praise God unless it goes through Jesus. We can't confess our sins apart from Jesus. We can't seek forgiveness apart from Jesus. Everything is done through Jesus to God the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. What? No one can get to the Father except through me. And as believers, that's how we pray. In fact, how do we pray? Why, why, why do we say at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name? Colossians 3.17. 
Because it's Jesus, our high priest, who is ministering on our behalf. Now you say, that's fantastic. So uh, takes my praise. I got that. That's good. He takes my thanksgiving. That's great. I'm glad he takes my confession. That's good. But quite honestly, uh, my life right now is going down the drain. I got some challenging times. My marriage is terrible. My, my, the issues in my life, I, I got discouragement going on, job situations. There's some temptation going on in my life that's dragging me down. So where's Jesus in all this? What's he doing for me now? How is he helping me through these situations? Great, he takes my praise. That's easy. But what's he doing for me in the, in, in the, in the difficulty of my situation? Well, let's look at two verses. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every, every respect so that he might become a, faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation just means he, he covered up the sins of his people one time for all time. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to come to our aid. So here in this verse, we have, we have the picture of the Trinity. I know it's hard to explain the Trinity and understand the Trinity. I get that. But you have God the Father, right? You have Jesus who's taking our praise and confession to God the Father. We can't get to the Father except through Jesus. And then you have Him ministering from heaven to us, but He just doesn't stand in heaven ministering to us. How is he ministering to us? Through his Holy Spirit who lives in us. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, He's going to give our 18, He's going to give us everything we need. So he knows what it's like to live like we live. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to face death itself. And he's ready to come to our aid, those who are being tempted. Look at another verse. Not only Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, be sure to jot that down, but Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. So we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus has been tempted. You cannot say to Jesus, you don't know anything about this temptation. You don't know how strong this is. You do, Jesus, this is one you just don't get. You can't say that to Jesus. He's been tempted in every way as we are, but what? Never gave in. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in time of iron need. Now, I know some of you are going through some tough stuff. And I also know this. The promise of God's Word says He is ministering for us from heaven itself, and He ministers through His Holy Spirit. 
and he knows what it's like. So there's nothing that we're going through that he, that, that he, that he can't relate to. And he ministers to us in our time of need. So if you're going through a tough time, let me ask you. I know you've checked out a lot of other stuff. Probably Googled some stuff. Have you prayed? Have you asked Jesus to say, I am desperate for you. I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 2, Lord, and you say you're going to help me in my time of need. I am standing on the promises of your word. I'm looking here at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and you say that you have experienced every temptation, yet you never gave in, and you say I can come with you with confidence, I can come before you with confidence to find grace and mercy to help in my time of need. i got a time of need. I need your help. Jesus is going to hear that prayer. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if you get, you know, I'm not promising the job the next day. Don't I get kind of tired of those testimonies. You know, I surrendered, and then the next day the job came. I surrendered, and the job didn't come for four years. <laughs> but God did a lot of work in my life in those four years. So I don't know what he's going to do with you. But I know this. He will help you in your time of need. His work is complete. It is honored. It's continual. Well, let me give you one. Here's I'm gonna, i got to show you this before we move on. Go to chapter Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Man, it's raining again. And, oh. All right. Acts chapter 7. Stephen, uh, first Christian martyr. He gets an audience before the Jewish ruling council, and he tells them that they're the ones that put Jesus, they killed the Messiah. That didn't go over well. So they stone him. He's the first Christian martyr. Now check this out. Look at verse 54 after his long sermon. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus. Think about this. Here's Stephen. He's being stoned. He gazes into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing where? That's where the writer of Hebrews said he was, at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So they heard him say that. They heard Stephen, who was being stoned, say, I see heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look at verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's just think about that for a second. Why do you think God puts these things in his word? I believe here that Stephen, who is being stoned, he's about to die, and he looks up, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God in power, in authority, in honor. And that gives him the confidence to die in the Lord. Now, look, I, I know we all hear stories about when people die, you know, and, and they call out for Jesus and they set up on their bed and angels come in the room. And I am not saying those stories aren't true. I'm, su- I'm sure that happens. And if that happens in your loved one's death, just thank God for that. 
And that never, that's not my experience. Death is ugly. Death is ugly. And Scripture calls it the last enemy. But Acts chapter 7, I believe, is there. And I don't know there's another passage, but I believe for the believer who's dying, from the physical aspect, it's ugly. But Jesus is there waiting for him, right? And he's saying, time to come home. And he's the one who ushers them home. Just as Stephen, about ready to die, says, there's Jesus waiting for me. So I believe the Christian who's truly trusted in Christ is able to say, Jesus is there. I can't prove that from Scripture. But Jesus is there waiting for me. He's the one who welcomes me home. The great confidence we have even in death. So Jesus goes before us. His work is complete. His work is honored. His work is continual. The work of Jesus, the writer is telling the readers, is greater than. Look at verse uh, 4, chapter 8, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. By the way, when Jesus was on earth, he was called what? He was called rabbi, right? He was called Lord. He was called master. He was called teacher. Was he ever called a high priest? No, because by the law, he didn't qualify as a high priest. A high priest had to be after the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. We learned last week why he is a high priest, but his order is different. It's not like the priests that live and die and live and die and live and die and live and die, 83 of them from Aaron to the last high priest. But Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, the priest that lives forever. He's a priest that lives forever. And the writer is saying if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a high priest. Look at verse 5. They serve as a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The writer here is saying that the first, the tent that Moses made, then the tabernacle, then the temple, that's just a pattern of heaven. That's a pattern of the, of the beauty of heaven. That's why all the churches, by the way, in Europe were these magnificent structures because the, the, the builders wanted to show the glory of God and the, and the beauty of, of, of heaven. They're patterns. They're examples. And the writer's saying all, all the Old Testament, all the sacrificial system, that was just to get us ready. That was just to prepare us. It wasn't it was bad. It wasn't that it was a mistake. It was just an imitation. It was getting us ready. It was a shadow. Now, to have a shadow, you have to have the real thing, right? The real thing was there, but the shadow, we saw the shadow in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes, he completes everything. Imitation, the real thing. How many of you like imitation stuff, right? No one likes that, right? Imitation. Remember when you were in elementary and you had those mashed pota- instant mashed potatoes? Cafeteria. Remember those? Those were, those were nasty. Imitation. You want the real potatoes. Remember those fish sticks on Friday? There, was, there were no fish in those sticks. Imitation. Imitation. 
Some of you travel a lot. And it's so, it sounds so glorious, right, to eat out and all those. Man, you can't wait to get back home and have a real home-cooked meal. The real thing, right? Although one guy told me um, a few years ago, he said uh, after he was married, his wife uh, fixed the first meal for him, and she brought out a plate of food, and it was covered. And she said, I just want you to know, my mom taught me to make two things, spaghetti and lemon meringue pie, just two things. And she uncovered it, and he said, well, which one is this? (laughs) So they've been married for 60 years, so uh, either she had a good sense of humor or he didn't ever say that again, one or the other. Teenagers, when you go to, or, or, or adults, when you go to, a, when you go to a concert, there's the warm-up band. Who, who enjoys the warm-up band? I don't. You want the real thing, right? Well, the Old Testament was just the warm-up band. It was just getting ready for the main attraction. And the main attraction is Jesus. He is greater than. Now, the writer is going to, we've got to go fast here. The writer is going to say, not only is he the perfect leader, he, bring, he ushers in the perfect covenant. And the covenant here, four things about the covenant, the new covenant. He goes back into the Old Testament, and he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, that was important. That's 600 years before Jesus. This is important because the writers are saying, well, wait a minute. Is this just something new? Did God make a mistake in the Old Testament? And, and, and all those things we did, that was a mistake, and now this is new. He's changed his mind. Or said, no, he didn't change his mind. The Old Testament, this has always been the plan. In fact, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah to show you that the new covenant was coming 600 years before Jesus. <clears throat> the prophet Jeremiah is telling us about this new covenant. Look at chapter uh, uh, 8, <clears throat> verses 7 through 10. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the, <clears throat> on the day when, they, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, how is he going to do that? By the Holy Spirit, right? In the Old Testament, Moses goes up to the mountain. God writes the, the Ten Commandments that summarizes the whole law on, on tablets, later on parchment. They read it. It's, you know, they, they see it. It's apart from them. But God says in the new covenant, something else is going to happen. I'm going to infill you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come in you. And I'm going to write my law, not on a tablet out here, but I'm going to make it internal. The new covenant is internal. I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts. The Holy Spirit is going to live within you. As a believer, think about this. As a believer, you cannot get away from God, and you can't get away from His Word. Now, you may say, I haven't read it for a while. Not good. But the Holy Spirit is still there. And as a believer, when we sin, the Holy Spirit says, you shouldn't have done that. You know better than that. You know you shouldn't have done that. When we, do something we, when we don't do something we should do, the Holy Spirit says, what are, we, what are you thinking about? 
should do that. And that's where repentance comes. The law is written inside of us. That's the new covenant. It is internal. Secondly, the new covenant is personal. Chapter, uh, the end of uh, verse uh, 10. I will be my God and they will be my what? My people. I will be my God and they shall be my people. Do you have a personal relationship with the living God. That's what the new covenant does, a personal relationship with God. When I talk to people and I say, tell me about your spiritual journey, and they say, well, you know what? I've always known Jesus. I have always known Jesus. I want to say, I say, time out. You have not always known Jesus. You have not always had a personal relationship with Jesus. You are a sinner. You were born a sinner, and you grew up a sinner. You were separated from God by your sins. There had to be a time in your life when you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God. Now, some people, they say, I know the date, and I know the time of day, and I know it was a Saturday. They know it to that. I'm not saying you have to know that. I'm just saying you got to know that there was a time in your life, whether it was an, a, a one day, an instant, an, a, an act, going down in front of a church, praying with your parents, whether it, was a, whether it was a period of time when you kind of started getting it and you said one day you said, yeah, I, I get it, I believe. But there has to be a time when you trusted in Jesus Christ alone. And I think so many people miss this personal relationship with Jesus. They know about religion. They know about Jesus. One person said a lot of people miss heaven by 12 inches. They know about him here. They just don't trust in him here from the head to their heart. So that's my question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? The, 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 the new covenant is personal. In Jesus, in the new covenant, covenant, there is complete forgiveness. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Aren't you glad of that? That the eternal God chooses, the, the God who is omniscient chooses he knows everything there is to know about, everything there is to know. He chooses to remember our sins no more. We have a hard time forgetting our sins, and other people certainly have a hard time forgetting our sins, right? There's only one who matters, and that's God. And he says, I'm gonna, because of Jesus, I'm going to choose to remember your sins no more. In Malachi, he says, I'm going to throw them in the depths of the sea. In Psalms, he says, I'm going to separate, in, in uh, one of the Psalms, I'm going to separate them as far as the east is from the west. And another passage says, I'm going to hide them behind my back. Man, that's great news, isn't it? God says, I'm going to remember your sins no more. When you come to me, you can start moving forward clean and clear. You don't have to have the anchor of your past on you. I want you to walk in this new covenant. I want you to walk in this freedom apart from the slavery of sin. One more thing. In Jesus, the Old Testament is finally complete. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, <clears throat> he makes the first one what? Obsolete. Again, the Old Covenant was not a mistake, but now it's complete. It's, it's an antique. It's, it's old. Now there's something new that has, that has taken over the responsibility of the Old Testament. It is obsolete. And what is being obsolete, what is becoming obsolete and, and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer is saying the new covenant with Jesus is here. And you can have confidence and live complete in this relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to cut uh, to our campuses as we prepare uh, for communion. And here in the South Hills, 
Now, Jim Warner, one of our elders, is going to lead us in communion in just a second. But just a couple things. Today, as you hold the bread and the cup, I want, I want you to, to ask this question. You, you, you've heard from Scripture that the work of Jesus is complete. The question is, are you living like that? Are you, are you living in the fullness of what Jesus has for you? What's, what's holding you back? Past sin still dragging you down? The guilt of the past? Man, with Jesus, there's a brand new day. He, he, he bought that freedom for you on the cross. And when you hold the bread and the cup, you remember that, right? That he purchased our freedom by his death on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. So ask that question as you thank Jesus for what he's done. Ask that question. What's holding me back from this, from this full, completed salvation? This one who is standing in heaven ministering to me, the Holy Spirit who lives within me, giving me everything I need. What's holding me back from full out following hard after Jesus?